Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Back from the Borderline. I received the funniest, most heartwarming, epic voicemail and I want to start off our episode today by playing it. Forewarning, this is for the dog lovers out there. There's lots of dog barking, so just prepare yourself, but it's amazing. Hi, Molly. My name's Paige. I'm 28. I'm calling from North Carolina. I just wanted to give you a little feedback. I am literally obsessed with your work and everything that you're doing. And I'm dog sitting right now. Yeah. And I um, I recently commented on one of... <laughs> on one of your Instagram posts telling you about how I needed to hear an episode about divorce and girl, we filed for divorce. Yeah, we filed for divorce and I am so ready to be on this journey with you and these dogs and you have changed my life. Man, you really have. I get a lot out of my therapy. And now, back from the borderline too. I just love you and thank you so much for all you do. I know, I know, I know. There was so much barking in that voicemail. But thank you for bearing with because I thought that the cuteness was overriding the amount of dog barking because it was just so cute and... I love the happiness that I hear in your voice page. I'm so happy to hear that you are moving into this new phase of your life and just grabbing 
the next opportunity with open arms. That's what it's all about. And it means the world that the podcast can be a companion to you on your journey. I really see us all as being on this road together. So that being said, if you're new here, welcome to the Back from the Borderline family and to returning listeners, welcome back. We're going to be diving into part three of our exploration on toxic shame. And so if you haven't listened to part one and two, I highly recommend that you pause this episode and move to part one because we are doing a deep dive on this and each episode builds on the one before it. So it is important if you want to get the best experience to listen from the beginning. So without further ado, let's get into it, shall we? So if you're tuning back in now, it means that you have already listened to parts one and two. So we know already the many faces of shame. We know the sources of shame. We also understand what healthy shame looks like and the reason why we have shame in the first place. And then on part two, we explored how that healthy shame the shame that we need to understand our limits and our own humanity can turn into toxic shame and become an identity. And at the tail end of episode two that you just finished, we spoke a bit about how many of the psychologists and mental health researchers that are on the front lines really trying to change the way that we view psychological suffering, we are only just now, since around the late 70s and between then and now, have we really started to understand toxic shame and the impact it's had. And so we developed a deep understanding through these last two episodes about how toxic shame could actually be at the root of many of what the DSM diagnose individuals with as quote-unquote disordered personalities and various other different types of dysfunctional mental illness. And understanding that the core of many of these different presentations of mental illness could be toxic shame is rather groundbreaking. And the fact that so many of us move through the current systems of mental health within the medical model of mental illness, so many of us will receive treatment and seek out help and not have ever heard of toxic shame, not have ever been asked what happened to us and maybe explore the beliefs we have to maybe diagnose whether toxic shame is the root of much of our suffering. This isn't discussed. And so it's my hope that by exploring this concept in deep detail, it can provide a resource and a guide for any of you who might be struggling and no one's ever pointed out toxic shame to you. And it might help you understand the behavior of your caregivers and your grandparents and back and back and back. I'm reading a book right now about a new form of therapy called family constellations therapy And one of the concepts that I learned is, is you need to go back three generations in your own family, in your birth family, to really understand 
your own behavior patterns. And there's so much we can gather, so much we can gain by exploring our family history and the way that they reacted to things, the traumas that might have happened to them, and how that has kind of been passed on as a lineage, and how it might unconsciously drive many of our own behaviors. We're in a really exciting time when it comes to exploring mental and emotional well-being. And so it's my honor to be able to put together a really in-depth series on toxic shame because I feel like we will be hearing more and more about it as years go on, but I'd love my listeners to be able to have this resource now. So that being said, we finished off in the last episode by talking about how different DSM diagnoses, personality disorders, or other types of behavioral dysfunctions could be at the root of toxic shame. So what we're going to do now is explore the different quote-unquote character disorder syndromes, as they were sometimes referred to in the 90s and 80s. Now we'll talk about them as maybe cluster B personality disorders and different types of disordered of the, the, the self So we're going to go through these, each of them, and then explore how each of them could be rooted in toxic shame. So in our last episode, we mentioned a character named James Masterson, who played a large role in the development of the borderline personality disorder label. And he also did a lot of work around narcissism. So according to James Masterson, The main clinical characteristics of the narcissistic personality disorder are, and I quote, and this is from his book, The Narcissistic and Borderline Disorders, grandiosity, extreme self-involvement, and lack of interest and empathy for others in spite of the pursuit of others to obtain admiration and approval. So according to Masterson, the narcissist is someone who is endlessly motivated to seek perfection in everything they do. So through this lens, a narcissistic personality is driven to the acquisition of wealth, gaining power, maybe gaining beauty, and also to find others and almost collect people who will mirror back this perceived grandiosity. And the idea here. And this is the most important point, is that underneath this external facade, this false self, and we described how the development of false selves manifests in the last two episodes. So underneath the facade, the mask, the false self of this narcissistic personality, according to Masterson, is an emptiness that is filled with envy and a burning rage. And the core of this emptiness is what? Internalized toxic shame. Now moving on to what was described as the paranoid personality. So in the DSM, the paranoid defense is a posture that is developed to cope with excessive amounts of shame. So a paranoid person eventually becomes hypervigilant because they are expecting and waiting for people to betray and humiliate them. And the paranoid person will interpret completely unrelated, innocent events as 
something that is personally threatening. And so therefore a paranoid person is going to be constantly on guard for these perceived outside threats. Now, whenever I think of someone who is a paranoid personality, you might think of someone who is the stereotypical, and I have this in huge air quotes, think of someone who might be portrayed on an episode of Law and Order as a paranoid schizophrenic who is convinced that the FBI has bugged their house and they're hearing voices and they're convinced they're being surveilled or stalked. That's on the complete opposite side of the spectrum. And that happens. And I can't even imagine how painful that would be to deal with. But it all comes down to a spectrum of the same thing. Now, if you just turn the volume down on that total stereotypical example, you're going to be thinking about stuff like thinking that someone doesn't text you back. It means that they hate you and they have some judgment about you. And then you get a text back from them maybe two days later and they're like, sorry, you know, I had a loss in the family and I just needed time alone. And then immediately you're filled with that feeling of like, oh my God, like, well, I hope that we are of like, whoa, I feel a little bit like an idiot because it wasn't about me. Like here I am completely thinking that someone texting me back is completely about myself. Nine times out of 10, it's not about us. But when we are in this more paranoid state of being, it makes us not fun to be around because people can sense it. Think about the last time that you've been around someone where you kind of felt like they were just, they felt like the world was attacking them, that the world was full of horrible people that just wanted to hurt them personally. And think about how energetically draining it is to be around someone like that. Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, especially if you're listening to this podcast right now, because usually my podcast um, attracts the type of people who are really on a journey to be the best version of themselves. And so it means you probably are developing a greater sense of awareness. So it means that you can probably imagine a time when you've been like that and you've wondered why almost people kind of like avoided you like the plague and you felt like almost it was really hard to get close to people. It might've been because you were emanating this kind of energy And I know this very, very well. And I think that I have absolutely slipped into paranoid and narcissistic and borderline behaviors throughout my recovery journey from internalized toxic shame. And this is what I'm realizing. And now I'm feeling quite liberated because I've identified with so many different mental health labels. If I'm being honest, when I read about so many different disorders. I'm like, wow, well, I can think of a time when I was definitely like that. And then I can relate to so many of them from CPTSD, ADHD, sometimes even narcissistic personality disorder. Nobody likes to admit that they feel like they are being narcissistic. I've identified as many of you know, with borderline personality disorder traits, because this whole podcast started with my exploration of me wondering, do I quote unquote have this thing called BPD? And now here we are almost, you know, two and a half years later. And my mind is completely changed when it comes to the way that we view psychological suffering. And when I came across the concepts of the mother and father wounds, generational trauma, and also toxic shame, This is when I really started realizing, okay, this is a more zoomed out issue. It's a collective thing. I'm not alone. 
the problem is, is that none of us are talking about it, but toxic shame is the core. And so I really think that if we all as a global society tackled this issue and threw out all of these labels, we could really gather around one main thing, especially here in the West, which is internalized toxic shame. So Herbert or Harry Stack Sullivan was an American neo-Freudian psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, and he was alive around the years late 1800s and then passed away in around 1950. He believed that, quote, personality can never be isolated from the complex interpersonal relationships in which a person lives. So, as an early pioneer, it's very unique. He did see the beginnings of some of the systemic nature, the collective nature of these behaviors. But when we're talking about this more paranoid-leaning personality traits that we were describing earlier, he described the sense of self of someone who is more on the paranoid-leaning side as feeling hopelessly defective. How many of us can relate to that? feeling hopelessly defective. So the sources of a paranoid person's own sense of deficiency are blamed outside of themselves. It's as if the inner eyes of shaming and contempt and disdain are projected outward on the world. So what does that mean? It means that fuck-ups, just random little mistakes, and other just completely normal moments of human failure can't really be owned by someone who has a more paranoid-type personality through the lens of these psychoanalysts uh, that we're exploring now. So the idea is, is that instead, they are disowned and transferred from the inner self to other people. So someone who's more paranoid leaning is, they're not texting me back and that's why I'm upset. Not that your upset actually comes from within and you're projecting that upset out to other people. Or my partner never plans enough dates for us. How many of us have thought this, right? And instead, we're projecting it out. If only my partner would do X then this feeling inside of me would feel better. Instead, you have an empty, lonely longing and needs that you are expecting someone to read your mind and instead of communicating your needs, you are projecting outside. Hard, hard relate because I feel like this is how I am just wired. I have to make a conscious effort multiple times a day to tell myself this is not about you. This is not about you. I'm hoping that in the future, with repetition, this is going to be something that I can just kind of automatically believe because it's exhausting, isn't it? Any of you who are really on a serious mental health journey, recovery journey of any kind, you know how hard it is. You know how fucking frustrating it is to go, I'm doing this again. I know, and being aware and then continuing to do it that's where you really have to start focusing on self-compassion and giving yourself grace because you're going to fuck up. It's just the way your brain is wired. It's going to take time because if you think about it, if you mess up and then you beat yourself up, you're literally doubling down on the toxic shame. So you, 
in my opinion, and this is my opinion, not a therapist, not a doctor, but I don't really think that it would be effective to do toxic shame work without having a heavy curriculum and heavy dose of self-compassion work going right alongside because it's really important. It's important to learn how to be kinder to yourself and maybe really doing some like heart opening practices. For me personally, I really, really find listening to Buddhist monks speak. You can literally look up so many different Buddhist monks speaking on YouTube and you can just get these beautiful one hour lectures. Right now I'm listening to one, um, which is a Buddhist talk by Bob Harris, who he's just describing the heart sutra. And there is just some beautiful heart centered theology within the Buddhist religion that is about self-compassion and also developing that inward self-compassion that can emanate outward. And I think it's a really good partner to toxic shame work. And I'm not trying to pressure you into that. If you check it out and it doesn't feel aligned for you, there's so many other beautiful heart opening practices. You can look into um, Christian contemplative prayer. There's a something called the centering prayer in Christian contemplative religion that you can look into. Um, finger labyrinths are really beautiful and there's no religious ties to that. Lots of different things you can do. But the key is to really, really focus on that self-compassion work. So for the longest time, human beings are fascinated with criminal behavior criminality in general. Think about how popular true crime is. And, you know, I spent a long time really, really into true crime content. And I mean, I'm obsessed with it. I love it. And if I allow myself to, I'll digest way too much of it. Because for a while there, when I was listening to too much true crime, I felt like I was like almost seeing danger everywhere. And I also think there's a certain element, not a certain element, there is a lot of trauma porn in true crime content, I started to think of how would I feel if I were a family member of a victim and their story got turned into trauma porn. So with that being said, I I tried to back off the true crime stuff a little bit. I will occasionally watch one that I find fascinating, but something to keep in mind is that if you tend to ingest a ton of true crime stuff, if you are a more paranoid personality and you're trying to recover it might be a good thing to at least just take a break because it really can fuel you seeing danger everywhere. Ditto with like spending a lot of time on Twitter or the news. There is a way that you can actually go to Wikipedia. Wikipedia has a like a news feature that has like completely all the bias taken out of it. It's basically so boring and it kind of makes you laugh because that's how the news should be. It should just be unbiased with no spin. And so if you want to step away from kind of those, the crazy nervous system attacks that we get from Twitter, the news and true crime and all of these things that we fill our minds with that can contribute to more of this paranoid thinking, but you still want to know what's going on in the world. That's a suggestion. And it's something that's really helped me because I don't want to just have my head in the sand and not know what's going on. But that feature on Wikipedia has been super helpful for me. So now that we're talking about the news, what do we see covered all the time? Criminal behavior. And criminal behavior and horrific acts 
oftentimes can be really the core of it can also come down to toxic shame. So Alice Miller, a psychotherapist and author who I like very much, she does a lot of work in this space. She has shown very convincingly that the majority of criminal behavior is what is known as acting out behavior. We've all heard that phrase, don't act out. Acting out is also called reenactment. So when we talk about reenactment, what we mean is that the criminal offender was once victimized in almost the same way as he then criminalizes. Hurt people hurt people. So children from families where there was violent abuse, children from families where extreme abandonment takes place. This is terrible levels of victimization. So children that undergo childhoods like this, they either take on a victim role and reenact that over and over and over again in their lives. This is why some people, unfortunately, that are victimized as children become repeated victims as adults. This happened to me. And when I learned about this, it made me realize so much because I carried so much toxic shame thinking like, how could I get sexually abused multiple times? Do I just have a stamp on my, my forehead? No, this is reenactment. So then on the other side of this the spectrum here, someone could also identify with their offender, right? So someone who got sexually abused as a child could identify with the offender and then reenact the offense on helpless victims, the helpless victim that they once were. And this type of reenactment is called repetition compulsion, which is the urge to repeat. And so if you watch true crime, many people who are repeat criminal offenders of horrific acts are have identified with their offender. They were children who were raised in horrific conditions and they have engaged in this, this reenactment and this repetition compulsion. So Alice Miller wrote a book called For Your Own Good. And she talks in detail about the types of reenactments of a teenage drug addict and a child murderer. So no one can really prove that every criminal is acting out of their own abandoning shame. But there is a growing amount of data to support even a hypothesis that this is most often the case. It's true often enough to be something that we should really be aware of. And as of now, there is no other solution to this problem of crime and repeated criminality. So it's no surprise that criminals, we continue to turn them into social outcasts, and that only increases the enormous amount of toxic shame, which is no surprise why so many criminal offenders go on to continue offending. When it comes to someone who engages in physical abuse, we need to understand that the physical offender was once a victim who was powerless and who was humiliated. My grandfather grew up in abject poverty and 
my father has told me horrific stories of his physical abuse and alcoholism. And the stories that my dad has told me about my grandfather's upbringing, about the horrific shame and poverty that he experienced. My grandfather is a perfect example of the physical offender who was once a victim and who was once powerless. And then what happens with these parents is that they physically humiliate and abuse their own children out of a repetition compulsion to reenact the behavior when they were abused when they were young. And they have never resolved this internalized shame in their own life. So their own childhood traumas are embedded in this series of shame memories. So these scenes from their upbringing become reactivated by their own children. And that's what spurs this reenactment. It's like the Pavlovian dogs, right? When you think about Pavlov's experiment, when they ring the bell, the dog salivates for food. James Kaufman wrote, parents who are about to abuse their own children are simultaneously reliving scenes in which they were also beaten, but they relive the scene from the perspective of their own parent as well. They now play their parent's role. So why would parents who were abused and beaten as kids want to be like their parents? So where we find the answer to this is in the theme of what we described in the last episode briefly of identification. And this brings us to another character, Bruno Bettelheim. He was alive between 1903 and then passed away in 1990. He was an Austrian-born psychologist, scholar, and intellectual. And he worked primarily um, within emotionally disturbed children. By the way, these are in air quotes. This is how he's described on Wikipedia. And he was an early writer on autism. And Bettelheim wrote about the dynamic of identification. Offender identification was defined by him with the phrase identification with the aggressor. So he thought that when children are physically hurt, and in psychological pain, they want to get out of it as quickly as possible. Because that's adaptive, right? Think about it. If you were abused as a child, if you were someone who was physically hurt, or if you had a parent who was physically hurt when they were children, it was adaptive for them to want to flee, right? The different flight responses, fight, flight, or freeze, and or fawn, rather, right? There are four. When you're a child, Flee is the easiest one because you're too small to fight. So the idea is, is that the children want out of the situation. And so oftentimes the best way to get out and they can't flee out of the house because they live there. So what happens is they cease to identify with themselves at all. They leave their body sometimes and they begin to identify with this shaming abusive parent or their shaming oppressor the person who is the abuser. And this is an attempt to almost possess that person's power and strength. So by forming the identification with the parent who is abusing, the child becomes instantly the weak, bad child and the strong, abusive parent. And this internal image of the abusive parent triggers that old scene 
and mediates the process. So someone who endures physical abuse as a child can have triggered within them compulsive reenactment of the abuse. And that can manifest as abuse towards themselves, towards their partner or their children. But the whole concept here, according to Bettelheim, is that internalized shame maintains this process however it plays out. That's what's behind the reenactment. So just because you were a victim doesn't mean that you're victimizing other people. It means that you could also be turning this abuse back onto yourself as well. So speaking of turning it inwards, we can explore another character, and that's Martin Seligman. He's still alive. He was born in 1942, and he's an American psychologist. He has authored multiple self-help books, and he's also done extensive studies on something called learned helplessness. So this is how he believes that victims of physical and sexual violence may remain victims throughout their lives. Like what I described happened with me that I didn't really understand until I came across the concept of learned helplessness. So if you identify with this, I want to let you know, don't let this give yourself more shame. It's okay. You didn't know about this. If you are a victim, you have just been living in survival mode. So give yourself grace. So let's talk more about learned helplessness and how when we're victims of physical abuse or sexual abuse, we can keep repeating these victim patterns. So in essence, random, arbitrary, and unpredictable accounts of abuse, experiences of abuse or violence in our lives creates this state of passivity in us as victims where we no longer feel that there's anything that we can do about our reality. We think we are hopeless. We've experienced the worst, especially as children and maybe sometimes from our caregivers. So why would the world be a good place? And so this is how even as young kids, we can develop this really strong negative belief system and we no longer believe we have a choice over our reality anymore. But a simpler explanation for bonding to violence is the fact that as someone is abused more and more and more, we are shamed more and more and more. The more internalized shame builds up and up and up, it's a greater likelihood that we're going to develop a belief that we are defective and flawed. There is something wrong with us. And the more and more ingrained that belief becomes that we are unlovable, flawed, broken, helpless, hopeless, the more our choices start going away. Think about that. If you really do believe in your heart of hearts, even if it's an unconscious belief that you aren't quite fully in touch with yet and maybe you're just starting to recognize the depth of that feeling as you listen to these shame episodes. For me, when I first started reading about toxic shame, it was really hard. I started really spiraling because I realized how much this ran my life and I want to like reach out and hold your metaphorical hand and say it's okay. The first step is just becoming aware and then you will get through this. But it's understandable that if we believe that we are unlovable, untouchable, defective, flawed, 
broken, hopeless, how could we have any choices? The whole purpose of therapy, by the way, if you didn't know, is to help you develop a sense of agency. What happens when you go into therapy? When anyone finds themselves in therapy, when you're in crisis, what's the core of it? Well, we know it's toxic internalized shame, but the other core of it is you feel powerless, right? You feel stuck. You feel like you don't have agency. You don't have choices. And so the whole work of therapy is helping us realize that we do have agency. We are able to write a new narrative and have choices, but internalized shame destroys our boundaries And without boundaries, we don't have protection. We feel like we have no agency. And for me, when I talk about this, I can feel my body just caving in because that's what that reality really feels like. So we're going to talk about sexual abuse. Sexual abusers are oftentimes addicted to sex. And sometimes they're reenacting their own early experiences of sexual or maybe even physical violation and sexual abuse generates crippling amounts of intense toxic shame and often results in a splitting of the self as i described to you before when we feel like we're small or when we're a victim we feel like we can't get away and the only option we have is to split off leave our body so Incest and sexual abuse offenders are completely fueled by this toxic, internalized shame. James Kaufman wrote, The perpetrator of the assault or violation is also shame-based. By acts are acts of power and revenge. That scene of forcible violation is a reenactment, a transformation of a scene of equal powerlessness and humiliation experienced by the perpetrator at the hands of a different tormentor. The victim, the target of revenge, is confused with the source of the perpetrator's shame. By defeating and humiliating the victim, the perpetrator is momentarily freed of his shame. So the victimization could be any type of violation when we're talking about being molested, groped, raped, even voyeurism, exhibitionism, incest, just indecent comments even. I had family members make really bizarre sexual comments about my body, my um, not my immediate family, and it was so violating. So in every single case of this, every case there is an acting out of the shame of the perpetrator and a victimization of the innocent millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So a really confusing thing is that toxic shame can also appear as grandiosity. So in psychology, grandiosity is a sense of superiority, uniqueness, or invulnerability. I'm reading from Wikipedia here. It may be expressed by exaggerated beliefs regarding one's abilities, the belief that few other people have anything in common with oneself, and that one can only be understood by a few very special people. The personality trait of grandiosity is principally associated with narcissistic personality disorder, but it's also a feature in the occurrence and expression of antisocial personality disorder and the manic and hypomanic episodes of bipolar disorder. Notice how even in Wikipedia, which Wikipedia is just an amalgamation of probably the most general findings on something, notice how it's so driven by these disorder labels and there's no mention of toxic shame, which is the root cause of this behavior. But we have so much talk about narcissists, narcissist abuse recovery, and so little talk about toxic shame. I think, and this is a hot take, I have spent some time in narcissistic abuse recovery subreddits and I have the same feeling about borderline abuse recovery stuff, is that people, for the most part on those types of communities, they are stuck in that neurotic space where they are wanting to project all of their stuff to the outside and they don't want to look inward. It doesn't negate the fact that they've probably had really abusive and horrible experiences with someone who was enacting their toxic shame in a more narcissistic presentation, but we're all doing this trauma dance together and we're not doing anyone any favors or ourselves any favors by trying to flip the script and make it somebody else's problem. We have to just look inward and do our own work and walk away and set boundaries with people who are hurting us so that we can break these cycles. So when it comes to psychoanalytic theory, grandiosity is a quote, disorder of the will. So what does that mean? It can appear in what we described before as this like narcissistic puffed up chest. Maybe you're Whenever I think of narcissistic vibes, I do think of Donald Trump. I think whatever you feel about him, he just gives like, I'm the best vibes, right? Or maybe even like Kanye, like my shit don't stink kind of vibes, right? So narcissistic presentation stereotypically can look like that self-enlargement, but what isn't often spoken about, which is more of a covert presentation, is that this grandiosity can also present like a worm-like helplessness, right? So on both ends of the spectrum, and quite often narcissistic behavior that is more like, woe is me, I am just a poor, pathetic piece of shit, right? You don't often see that as this grandiose presentation, but it is. And I have absolutely fallen into that type of behavior in the past. 
But the thing about each presentation, this self-enlargement, the puffed out chest, or the I'm a worm, I'm a pathetic POS, is that each extreme believes that they're more than more or less than human. Each one is a huge exaggeration. One is a god and one is a worm, right? So it's important to see that the less than human worm-like hopeless one is also grandiose, which is hard to understand, right? Hopelessness, this like I'm a worm. The vibe is that nothing and no one can help me. I'm the sickest possible one. I am the one who is outside the norm. I'm the best or the worst that there has ever been and there ever was. The sense of grandiosity results from the human will, our will, our sense of agency somehow being disabled in some way along our developmental journey. Our will is Disabled primarily through the shaming of the emotions. The human will is defined as the faculty or mode of the soul which self-determines, inclines, desires, and chooses in reference to moral and religious objects and ends. When it comes to philosophy, the will is a faculty of the mind. Our will is just as important as different parts of the mind along with reason and understanding. And in psychology, the idea is is that those of us who have kind of a disordered or dysfunctional relationship with our sense of agency or our will, this contributes to a lot of those disordered or dysfunctional behaviors. And so, as we were saying, when the will is sort of disabled, the will is disabled mainly through getting shamed for our emotions. And the shamed and blocked emotions that we are not able to express stop us from being able to fully integrate the intellectual meaning of different growth experiences. So when something emotional happens in our lives, a really charged um, event of some kind, emotions actually have to be felt and like discharged in order for our intellect and our reason and judgment to make sense out of them. So it's almost like when we eat food, they need to be, it needs to be digested and moved through our system. Emotions are like that. So emotions kind of skew our thinking. And when emotions get bound up with toxic shame, it's almost like they become frozen blocks of ice in our body, which block the full interaction between our mind and the will. So we no longer have our full capacities to act as our true selves in this instance. So our will, your human will, is something that is in you. It's in everyone. It's the drives. It's an appetite that we all have. You can't stop it. And the thing is, it's good. It's good energy. It's meant to fuel us towards getting things done and getting our needs met. But the problem is, is that those of us who are debilitated by toxic shame, this healthy drive becomes disordered or dysfunctional. And so we're cut off from our mind and our reasoning. Think about it. When you lose your shit and you split on someone you love, you say something you didn't mean, your mind and your will were not showing up at the party. Your your desires were just 
exploding all over the place. Your emotions were exploding all over the place. You need your mind and your reason and your will and your emotions to all be working like a concert together. So without connection to all these different important parts of our mind, then our will starts like willing itself. And this is when we try to control everything, when we experience ourselves as like grandiose, omnipotent God or a complete permanent failure like the worm, or it exhibits an impulsive behavior or thinking in absolute extremes all or nothing. You can see that toxic shame where we are completely disabled from being able to be connected to our mind and our will and this healthy connection, this symbiotic relationship, it causes so much disorder and dysfunction in our minds and in our lives and in our relationships. So toxic shame is a core cause of this sense of spiritual starvation that many of us experience. This can show up as just wondering what's the point You feel like you didn't move through these different initiatory experiences in your life. You feel devoid of meaning, devoid of purpose, empty. You might even feel like, I don't know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, but I don't really know where to go. You just feel like empty and unanchored. You're not connected to the world around you. Spirituality for me doesn't have to be religious. And I want you to know that it doesn't have to be that way for you. It doesn't have to be dogmatic. It's something that I believe everyone should build their own sense of spirituality. And I spoke about it on the last episode that that could be something as developing a spiritual relationship with nature or animals or something that means something to you. Toxic shame is ultimately a spiritual problem and people have called it spiritual bankruptcy. I like the phrase spiritual starvation because to me, it really feels more like a hunger that you just can't quite put your finger on. So spirituality is the essence of human existence. You've heard the phrase, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not material beings on a spiritual journey. We are spiritual beings who need an earthly journey to become fully integrated. And spirituality is a lifestyle. It's something that you build that works for you. Because whatever it is, it should enhance and expand your life. It should drive you towards wanting to grow and expand. You want to seek out newness. You're exploding with creativity. But the core of it? Spirituality is about being. You are a human being, not a human doing. And even if you don't connect with any kind of spiritual tradition and you don't have any interest in it, just purely focusing on mindfulness and being is key. Sam Harris is the creator of a really, really beautiful mindfulness app has a great podcast. I really like Sam Harris. He is into meditation, but he considers himself an atheist. So if someone can make a huge career for themselves about the importance of just being and not being tied to any kind of spiritual tradition, there's an example for you. Regardless of how you feel about spirituality, you need to be able to zoom out, understand that you are a human being, 
not a human doing, that you are valuable just as you are. And taking time to just be is so important. Being is the ground of what makes up human beings. And in this day and age, so many of us don't have any time to just be. We are so caught up in the past and the future that we are not here and now. And we are so caught up in our neuroses or our grandiosity and our stories and have no self-awareness that we're just running through our lives like a bull in a china shop without understanding our meaning and our purpose or reflecting and wanting to move through initiatory experiences that are right for us and growing as a person and shedding the baggage that was put onto us from generational family trauma. Waking up to the impact of toxic shame can really help you learn that you are just a human being and just being is enough. Toxic shame can cause us to other ourselves and dehumanize ourselves. According to John Bradshaw, toxic shame is an alienation of the self from the self and it causes us to become what he calls otherated. Otheration is actually a phrase used by a Spanish philosopher, Ortega y Gasset, to describe the process of dehumanization. So Gasset says that man is the only being who lives from within. So to be truly human is to have connection with an inner self, an inner life, and then living from within to without. There's a phrase in the esoteric traditions, as within, so without, as above, so below. And that's a phrase for a reason. Animals, in contrast, they live in constant hypervigilance mode. They're always on guard. They're looking always outside themselves for sustenance and guarding against danger. Remember, does that sound a lot similar to the more paranoid presentations? We are just like animals, right? So when we're living like that, we are not being humans, according to many philosophers, because the definition of human is having a rich inner life. But when we are stuck in our trauma, we are no different than the animals who are living in constant hypervigilance, constantly guarding ourselves against danger. So when we don't have an inner life, according to John Bradshaw and Gasset, they believe that we become otherated and dehumanized. Toxic shame with that extreme that we discussed with the worm-like versus grandiose behavior, it's that more than human, less than human, extreme polarity and binary, that is dehumanizing because being a human, a human being with healthy shame, we know that we're not God. We also know that we're not a shitty, less than nothing worm. We are, when we fall into those beliefs, dehumanizing ourselves. It's that simple. So we talked about in the first few episodes, then we feel that need to create a false self to cover and hide the authentic self. And this means that in order to keep up with our false selves, we have to work really fucking hard to create a life that is completely ruled by doing, 
achieving, proving ourselves rather than what? Being. Being doesn't require measuring. Being is justification in its own. Being is grounded in an inner life that is rich and that keeps getting richer and richer. We don't need anything from the outside. This is the whole purpose behind the biblical allegory, right? You've heard many times if you grew up in the West, even if you didn't find yourself in Christian church, you've probably heard the kingdom of heaven is within. That is within the Christian scriptures because it's kind of referring to the need for this rich inner life. Toxic shame is what causes us to look on the outside for the sense of happiness and for validation for people to like us, to tell us that we're good enough. Because in this instance, our inside, we believe, is flawed and defective. And so this is how toxic shame shows up as that spiritual starvation. We don't have an inner well. To me, I think of wanting to cultivate a beautiful well within myself that I can go and get nourishing and hydrating cups of water. And that means that I have to tend to my inner self with my own spiritual practices, which are so unique to me. I don't think that anyone could understand my sense of spirituality because I've created it on my own. The spiritual teachers that I love and that have changed my life are from so many different traditions and there's a connecting thread in all of it that makes sense for me and it has allowed me to cultivate a rich inner life and that's what i want for each of my listeners i want you all to go find what can create that deep inner well for you that you can draw on and know that you're okay and that you're already full and anyone else who comes to your life you can share that water from your well and maintain it yourself, and they can share their water with you. It's a mutual exchange. You're not an empty hole that is begging to be filled by just anything. And that is how toxic shame played out for me. And I don't want that for anyone because it's incredibly painful. And not only is it painful, is there's no finish line. You're like the dog who has the string and the carrot in front of its face, and you're just running mindlessly on a treadmill. And you don't realize you're in this no-win game. And that brings me back to how shame turns into this sense of hopelessness. And it's referred to in Alcoholics Anonymous circles as like the squirrel cage. Toxic shame has this quality of being completely unfixable. It can really feel like there's no way to fix this. Because if I'm flawed... If I'm inherently defective and I'm actually a mistake, then how can we logically believe that anything can be done to fix that? So when we really believe this, it leads us to a sense of impotence. And when we think of the word impotent, at least what I think of immediately is like someone who is infertile, an impotent man. I read way too much medieval literature. And when they say a man is impotent, it means that he can't have a child or someone who can't achieve an orgasm or an erection. But another definition of impotence is an inability to take effective action or helplessness. 
So when our toxic shame has led us into the squirrel cage where we are completely helpless, where we have this feeling of impotence, how can we change who we are? And toxic shame also has a circular quality, which means that shame leads to more shame leads to more shame. And this is how we talked about in episode two, how people with addictive behaviors are actually acting out that internalized shame. And so when they act out on their addictive behaviors, they then feel shame about the shameful behavior about the shameful behavior. So once we internalize the shame, shame then becomes what is known as functionally autonomous. And when something is functionally autonomous, it means that it can happen. It can be triggered inside of us without anything really happening, without a stimulus. So we can just imagine a situation or have a thought and then immediately feel the sense of deep shame. We can be completely alone by ourselves. A trigger can happen and then we will have a full shame spiral through an internal dialogue. And if you've ever had that happen, you know how painful it can be. And it can happen just out of nowhere. It can be a perfectly sunny morning, enjoying coffee with your partner, and you think of something and then it's, you're down. So the more we experience shame, the more we're ashamed, and then, and then, and then, and then it never ends. Circle, circle, jerk of sadness. (laughs) As we have said, that's my favorite phrase on this podcast. So it's this never-ending like quality it almost feels like a dead end of shame that makes it so easy to believe that there is no hope and the possibility for any kind of repair or moving forward feels like it's not even possible because we feel essentially flawed as a human being so when we add to that this building and generating quality of shame we can really really understand how many of us have suffered these devastating soul murdering powers of neurotic and toxic shame it can destroy and has destroyed many of our lives and the lives of our caregivers and theirs before them and it's playing out in the political arena right now it's playing out on a global scale And if you start becoming aware of toxic shame, you're going to really start seeing it outside of you and within you too. But the magical part about it is, is that by becoming aware of how it plays out, understanding the dynamics, and by naming it, we take the first step at taking power over it, transmuting it, alchemizing it, slaying our dragons that's it for the free portion of back from the borderline out of all the things you could spend your time on out of the zillions of content options available you chose to be here with me more importantly you chose to show up for it yourself next up is the back half of the episode available to paying subscribers if you're tuning in from the public bftb feed you'll get to hear a preview Unlock the full episode as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content by becoming a premium submarine. To sign up today, check out the link in the show notes or visit backfromtheborderline.com. All right, let's get into it. What's up, everyone? We are on our stupid walk for our stupid mental health. 
warning again that we are out in the world and so you will hear ambient noise just like this car that's about to probably blast past me here in a hot second i do try to spare you all from the most prominent of the annoying noise there's like nice background noise that's a vibe like birds or maybe a babbling brook and then there's like oh my god is this podcaster even giving a fuck about my audio experience kind of background noise like a man in a midlife crisis porsche blasting past so i'll try my best to protect you from the latter so anyway here we are I really appreciate my patrons, specifically the premium submarines that have been sending me really positive messages of encouragement because I've been being a little bit more, here we go, another not so nice noise. This is the tiniest, yappiest dog you've ever seen. But I appreciate your support when it comes to allowing me Not that that's even the right way to phrase it, but just being so supportive of me being more intuitive with my approach when I am creating the premium content for you. As many of you know, something that I've been really battling with um, lately is my perfectionism. It is something that probably causes, I would say, the most amount of distress and just disorder in my own life ironically and isn't it kind of funny that the very most difficult thing about perfectionism is how it actually makes things the opposite of perfect and I think that's been the hardest thing for me to get my head around the last few weeks as I've been battling with this I convince myself that My listeners are going to be upset if I don't stick to the plan or something like that, right? I promised that I would do a stupid walk every week. And if I don't stick to that, then all my subscribers are going to leave me. And I just quit my job to focus on the podcast full time. And I'm still stuck in this traumatized, catastrophic thinking. I still think that I will be caught out as some kind of fraud right I know I'm not a therapist and I'm not a doctor and I reiterate that so much but every time I receive an email from someone saying how much the podcast has helped them it's like I can't even allow myself to fully be proud of the work I do I still beat myself up saying well not me saying it but it's that critical inner narrative that little demon on my shoulder saying you know you don't deserve any of this and it's all gonna go away this is just like a brief moment (laughs) instead of the other part of me that is my higher self I feel who is telling me you're building something with the best intentions you have you're gonna be right sometimes you're gonna be wrong sometimes And the people that support you will understand that you're a flawed human being and that you're just doing your best and trying to document the journey of you 
answering these big questions that you have yourself and that that will grow over time and that even if I lost subscribers, more will come and it's all going to be good. And I have a really hard time accepting that that is the more probable reality. The like more balanced, just like, yep, subscribers are going to come, they're going to go. People understand and love you as a flawed human being. That's so hard to accept about myself. I could accept it about you, listener, because I truly believe that about everyone else. But that's what toxic shame does to us. Now we're literally passing a an actual waterfall thing situation. So some serious water sounds. But that's what toxic shame does to us is make us believe that everyone else deserves the benefit of the doubt except you. And that's where I'm at. I mean, I've had a few people that I love very much visit me over the last three to five months. And I'm not going to lie. I think I would say that April... Yeah, March... March through about now, beginning of July, has been rough. I've gone through some huge life changes. Zaz has gone through some huge life changes. I stepped away from working full-time, which I'd done since I was in college. I, for the most part, always had some kind of full-time job, even though I like did a lot of chronic job hopping as I moved around. And going full-time with this podcast has been a huge adjustment. It's, it's really... It's really made me just completely have to believe in in this work that I'm doing. Not that I didn't before, but instead of just being a fun hobby, I'm now going like, this is my life's work, right? It's a huge, huge transition. And it's making me confront a lot of things, right? Because I grew up in a quite a, a small Midwestern town where it was you got a job you don't even have to go to college really it'd be good if you did I guess but it's like you get a good job when you're done with high school or college and you make sure it has good insurance (laughs) and the best you can hope for is like hopefully getting a good boss and like working your way up pretty far or becoming like you know going into a profession maybe teaching or something or nursing and it's like you do that get good health insurance, retire, and then you can like live some kind of relaxing lifestyle. And I always really hated that, the sound of that reality. But I just thought that that was just what it had to be. And now, a little two years after me starting this podcast... I sat down at this microphone the first time and literally said in that first episode I recorded, like, I don't know if anyone's going to be listening to this. I had, Zaz had to force me to start Patreon. I had listeners messaging me saying, how can I support your work? Like DMing me on Instagram back when I had my DMs even on, which I don't anymore, which is a whole nother (laughs) episode entirely about like boundaries and trying to be a content creator. 
But like people were telling me, Molly, we want to pay you for your work. We want to support the growth of this so that you can focus on this full time. Not to be famous, literally just like I just wanted to not have to do the work that I was overworking at my full-time tech job always. And I always put my podcast on the weekends because I knew that if I spent my actual work time on the podcast, that wasn't really me living in my integrity, right? It would be me kind of like lying to my employer. So I always gave a hundred percent to this job and the work was not fulfilling. I didn't, um, even though I gave it my all, I was the leadership just it there was no alignment there in terms of people didn't want to have the tough conversations you know and that I felt like I was in another environment where I was completely having to go along with power structures and like bite my tongue and it just didn't work and I wish that all the people that I used to work with well too you know like Because what became apparent was that I was ready to do my own thing. So I switched on Patreon, you know, and here we are where I was able to leave that full-time role that I was at and focus on the podcast. Did I take a pay cut? Yeah. Am I having to really now get focused on what I'm doing? Yes, but I'm so blessed to be doing something now that I genuinely love and that I was doing anyway (laughs) for myself because I I'm genuinely so passionate about this that's what makes it actually not work and I'm the last person on earth that would have told you oh you can love the work that you do two and a half years ago I was like yeah I think you can like the people you work with and but work's always going to be work and you have to do it to get by like and the people that really believe that you can like get lost in the flow state and love what you're doing and work never feels like work I was always like yeah right now are there parts of what I do right now like not my favorite yeah like kind of the admin related stuff right like even if somebody (laughs) has a problem with their subscription like I'm the person usually helping with it and I'm not at a phase where I can employ anyone so I'm doing this all by myself recording everything but I'm at a place where I have finally found like my ikigai as we talked about in that other episode. I feel like I found the thing that I'm good at, that the world needs, that I can get fairly compensated for. I really made a conscious decision to not go down the path of offering some like multi-thousand dollar coaching engagement to work with me because that did not feel ethically aligned for me. I just wanted to make content that I wanted to stand by, admit that I'm not a guru or a a coach or any kind of certified professional, just someone who's seeking and other people who are interested in benefiting from like my obsessive research and (laughs) self-reflection that they can like throw some money into a monthly pie um, so that I can keep doing this. And then, you know, if it grows to stratospheric proportions, then great. But if it doesn't and it just helps me keep doing this, then great. So if I look at it that way, I've already got what I need. And I don't have to worry about it somehow disappearing 
overnight. Because as we've been exploring in this shame series, <laughs> it's not going to disappear overnight. I mean, it could because any reality is possible, but what's the most understandable reality? Oh my God, wait. <laughs> come here. No, come through. All right, everyone. This is unexpected. I was walking and guess who I ran into? So mysterious, right? Well, if you want to find out who I ran into on my walk, you're going to have to become a premium submarine. By subscribing, you'll unlock the full version of this episode as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content. All you need to do is visit backfromtheborderline.com or better yet, click the link in the episode description to learn more today. Not only do my premium subscribers receive loads of additional content each month, but the support of these subscribers also allows me to focus on podcasting full-time and invest more in research and production quality. If you're not ready to become a premium submarine yet, that's okay too. It'll always be there for you. You can support my work by rating the podcast, writing a review, or sharing an episode with someone you care about. To make sure you're notified each time I drop a new episode, follow Back From The Borderline on your favorite podcast app. I also share daily photos, quotes, and additional references and resources with my community on Instagram. You can find me there at Back From The Borderline. Never forget, you haven't met all of you yet. Within your weaknesses, your inner chaos and disorder lies your greatest strength. If only you would dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. We have to get to the point where we're willing to be the fool to begin our hero's journey. And never ever forget that anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. See you next Tuesday. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thank you. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.